Good morning. (laughs) Hear the word of God from Paul's second letter to the churches in Corinth, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies, we will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared for us this for us, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. This is the word of the Lord. All right, morning everyone. I was kind of caught up in the verse, even though I've studied this for the last couple weeks, uh, just thinking about it. In those 10 verses, there's a lot of theology. There's a lot going on, and we're going to unpack that this morning. So, um, good morning, I'm Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at, at Waypoint. Our lead pastor, Lawrence, and his family are out of town this weekend, and so grateful they get some time with family. Um, but I'm excited because we're in a sermon series in 2 Corinthians. And this is one of the letters that Paul and his companion wrote to the church in Corinth, a church that he started, but then he has this series of letters and dialogues and visits over a period of time where there's been a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of hurt. So Paul starts the church and then they kind of turn on him. And there's a series of letters and and 2 Corinthians is is probably maybe the fourth letter in the series. We don't know exactly. It's definitely the third letter, at least. There's a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. But there's just a lot of dialogue going back and forth. And Paul feels hurt by them. And this, this letter is, is part of the reconciliation process between Paul and the Corinthian church. Uh, last week, Peter and Mary shared about hope when life hurts and how we can choose to not lose heart, lose heart or not give up and trust in God's presence even amongst and when we're dealing with extremely difficult cir- circumstances of life. So this week, we're at the next section in 2 Corinthians. Most Bible scholars think that the, what we read last week and what we hear this week are connected. And there's even a debate whether chapter 4, verses 16 to 18 should be part of this section or part of the section we read last week. They're, it's kind of the, the connecting verses. Actually, I heard from some of you that last week's passage, you, some people actually went home and memorized uh, chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. It was actually one of the few passages that I memorized years ago, early in my Christian walk. Chapters 4 and 5 have been extremely important to me in my Christian walk over the years. And chapter 5 has been extremely important to my wife, Erica. And she's going to, so both of us are going to share this morning because this is a really important 
chapter to both of us in our walks. And we, I just feel like you can, God's going to give us insight, I hope, as, as we look, come to his word of just what does it mean to live in this tent that Paul calls it. So to start, I want to ask a question. How many of you like camping? Raise your hands. Okay. Half the room. I got a couple of these. All right. And I don't mean glamping or an RV. Okay. I'm talking... How many of you like, this says four people can fit in this thing. That's what this says. Look at the Clendenins right here. They, four of them, they, the four of y'all could fit. Because Walmart says four people can fit in this thing. I've been in this, four little people maybe, uh, four hobbits. Um, what's the longest you've ever lived in a tent? Let's do that. Anybody done more than a week straight? Two weeks. Wow, a couple, three weeks. Wow, we have a winner. Okay. So, I bring this up because in this passage, Paul uses the illustration of a tent. It's also the, the, he, the word linked to the word tabernacle. Um, and tents in their time could be small or big, but bigger, not as big as like a circus tent or something. But a tent to Paul meant a temporary dwelling not a permanent rest place, just like it does today. Um, so for this, and he does this illustration just to help us understand our earthly bodies. So this morning, Eric and I are going to answer two questions. The first one is, what is Paul saying at this point of the letter? And how can we allow the, the truths presented in this section of the letter, how can we let them guide us through the journey of life in this tent? And then we'll offer a couple applications and prayer points. So what is Paul saying at this point of the letter? So I'm going to give you a summary from the NIV Bible, the notes, just at the top. Like some Bibles, it just has a, this is what 1 Corinthians is about. I'm sorry, this is what 2 Corinthians is about. And, and I'll be honest, I went to about six different introductions to, 1, to 2 Corinthians. It's probably the only book in the Bible where if you read the summary like a two or three sentence summary, you're going to get different answers from different um, people because it's, it's a letter that Paul's covering a lot of topics. So I thought this was the most comprehensive summary that's just a couple sentences. It says, Paul wrote this follow-up letter to the church in Corinth, and then I put the one, two, three here. One, to tell them how pleased he was that the people were sorry for the way they had acted. So in this conflict, in this misunderstanding, Paul's saying, I'm thankful that we're moving past it and you guys are trusting Christ and not trusting all these other things that were separating us. Two, Paul is commending them that they're now trying to live the way God wanted them to. And three, the letter also, Paul's defending himself against the accusations being made by false teachers who came in and, and they were better speakers than him. And they came in and tried to take over the Corinthian church and say, you don't need to listen to Paul, listen to us. All three things, all three of these are happening at different points of the letter. So when you get to one point of the letter, you need to say, which part of the, sorry, what's Paul addressing at this moment? And I would argue that here, Paul is doing number two. Paul is pleased that they are now trying to live the way God wanted them to. And Paul is trying to encourage them to press on and show them that suffering is never in vain because of the hope of the resurrection. Paul is reminding them that their future is guaranteed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul is reiterating what he said at the beginning of the letter. In 1 Corinthians 20 and 21, Paul says this. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm. And both of us is probably him and Timothy um, in Christ. This is awesome. He anointed us. This is the only place in the Bible where the anointing in the New Testament where the anointing isn't about Jesus. It's the same word. This is literally the word like Messiah. Like we're little messiahs. We get the anointing. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians is a letter, but it's filled with all these deep theological truths at, at moments. And this is one of those. Like he anointed us, and Paul is, I believe this section, Paul's reminding them of that. Just before this section, uh, Paul introduces the theme of resurrection, and he challenges his readers not to get discouraged about the things of this earth that will pass away, but to focus on what is eternal. Paul continues the resurrection theme talking about our new bodies, and that's what this section's about. For five, chapter 5, verse 1. And for those of you unfamiliar, I'm using the New Living Translation. This is a translation that takes the original languages and puts it into modern English. And I chose that this morning because I thought it would give us the essence of kind of what, how they would have received this letter in their original language. For we know that this earthly tent we live in, sorry, for what, that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Interesting thing, because the house is the body. So that's what Paul's trying to say. And he says, we're like a tent now, but we'll be like a house. There's a lot of deep theology in, going on in this section. But for, at this sentence, in this moment, I want you to remember one thing or focus on one key part of this. Remember that your body is a temporary tent, a fearfully and wonderfully made tent, but a temporary and fragile tent. Yet, you have treasure, like treasure, the Greek word meaning good stuff, in jars of clay, as we learned last week. And the tent will be renewed to be a future building with a forever solid foundation that can never be destroyed. N.T. Wright says this, he says about this passage, he says, in this passage, and it's typical of many in the New Testament, heaven is not a place where we go when we die, but rather the place where God has our future bodies already in store for us. So remember, we're a tent now, but there's something in store for us. The passage goes on. We grow weary. Literally in the original Greek, it says, we groan in distress in our present bodies. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on our heavenly bodies we will not be spirits without bodies. Literally in the original language it says, we will not be found naked. But what Paul means is that the body, the soul and the body won't be separated. They will be together. In this passage, Paul is also dealing with what goes on in between when we die and when Jesus comes back in the final judgment to renew all things. So this passage is extremely important for theologians because it, it gives us an idea of, of what goes on when we die. But it seems that Paul is adding some additional thoughts to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
about the bodily resurrection. So Paul, it seems like at this moment, Paul's continuing that to, as he's encouraging them. So we can't get too deep in the weeds of the theology here, but I'm going to read three quotes that from different, from some New Testament scholars that give us the essence of what, of this section. The first one is from Linda Belleville, a, a New Testament scholar. She says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 is one of the most researched and written about passages in Paul's writing, and for good reason. Paul is tackling the topic of Christian hope beyond the grave, and more specifically, what happens to the believer at the point of death. In our culture, the subject of death holds a certain fascination as well as repulsion. And actually, I thought about it, and I'm probably going to try to do a podcast on this idea, and even about Halloween, because I feel like for a lot of us, we're like, how should we deal about with Halloween? Like, all of a sudden, now our neighbors are putting tombstones on their yards and stuff, and so it's, in a sense, there's some positive in that, because our culture avoids death at all costs, but maybe there's some negatives too. So we're, maybe we'll, we'll dive into a podcast to, to talk about some of that stuff. So remember, this passage is really important because it's one of the few places in the text where we get that idea, but it doesn't explain everything. The next part, it says, clothes are an anticipation of our resurrection body. Just, just remember this. That's, that's a theme that most New Testament scholars would believe, that the fact that we like clothing now, that it's people like to put on nice garments and stuff, that, that's what Paul's going for in this illustration. And then the third one, this is also from N.T. Wright. I rely on N.T. Wright a lot because he's one of the foremost scholars where he t- he, about the resurrection and hope. So I've, in, in studying this passage, he, he helped me see it quite a bit. Uh, It says, the resurrection body then will be similar to the present one in some respects and quite different in others. It's hard to imagine just what it will be like. The resurrection of Jesus himself was regarded by Paul and others in the early church as the model and prototype of the one that is to come. But that doesn't tell us much except for that it really is what we would call a body, but with startling new properties. Remember, the the men on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus. And in John 20... Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene mistakes the risen Christ for the gardener. So I'm not going to get deep in the weeds on what Paul's talking about our bodies, but we know that we will have resurrected bodies. So for now, we'll leave the theological conversation and not focus on what we have to speculate, but was focus and clear about our bodily resurrection. So the passage goes on. It says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. It's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. And Eric is going to talk a little bit about this. God himself has prepared us for this. As a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So death gets swallowed up by life. That's a good thing. Death doesn't win. So we are always confident, even though... We know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord, for we live by believing and not by seeing. And I know some of you were probably mad at the translation because it didn't say we walk by faith and not by sight. That's this passage. We live, we walk, not by by believing, by faith, and not just by what's in front of us, what's physical. Yes, we are fully confident that we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be home with the Lord. You see the hope of the resurrection. It's hope in life and it's hope in death. The passage in the letter goes on and it says, so whether we are here in the body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. 
we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Wow, Paul really jumps right in, huh? This letter is, 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 is intense. It covers a lot of theology, but it's also him dealing with a real-world situation. This final statement may sound discouraging or scary, but for those in Christ, we can see it as a warning to live for God and that what we do on this life matters, but we can also see it as an encouragement and a hope. I'm going to show a couple photos. So this is a picture of today in Corinth. Right now, you can go and, and go to this place. And that's the ancient judgment seat, the Bema, which was the center of the center of town. It was kind of like the, in this Roman city, the judgment seat where the governor would judge people and, and cast out judgments. It was very public. Um, next slide. This is what it looked like in its, in its ancient time. The center of town was this judgment seat, this Bema. It's actually, if you read chapter 18, Paul stands at this judgment seat. So the people of Corinth would have known this idea of a judgment seat. I'm going to read another quote from N.T. Wright that really summarizes this section, how we're to think about this and what Paul's saying at this moment. The picture Paul draws here is of everybody appearing before the Bema, the judgment seat of the Messiah. Everybody will be brought, so to speak, up the road into the center of town to stand before the Messiah and receive the reward for the things which they had done with their bodies, whether good or bad. This is one of the clearest statements of the last judgment in Paul's writings, and indeed anywhere in the New Testament. The tough part is that this statement is in the middle of Paul talking about other things. So I, we talked about this a lot when we, when we talked through Re Revelation. We'll talk about this again when we do uh, First and Second Thess Thessalonians. But for, for now, I want us to focus on this. This passage is a warning to believe, to put your faith in Jesus. For we live by believing and not by seeing, and to continue to trust him with your lives. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. The judge is also the savior. That's our faith. The person who's the judge is also the one who saved you. So we're pretty secure when we put our faith in the savior. You ever heard the, it's kind of like maybe I know the judge or I know a guy. Like, it's way better than that. This isn't I know a guy. This is I know the guy. <laughs> and he's on my side. The second question for this morning is how can we allow the truths presented in this section of the letter guide us on our journey through, this li through life in this tent? Every time I say tent, I'm going to hold it up. All right. Remember, in this section, Paul is pleased that they were trying to live the way that God wanted them to. And he's trying to encourage them in that. This passage has been extremely important to me and Erica in our faith journeys, but as we have meditated on the text and experienced over the years, we have seen the Holy Spirit give us both some of the same insight, but also some different insight and perspectives. And I want to share those, we're going to share those briefly this morning. For me, at different points in my life, this passage has been one that forces me to focus on what is eternal, because I can get really caught up in the things that are present and in front of me. Anybody get caught up in the, there's some good stuff. 
I like to collect Nintendo things. I like to enjoy things. I love college football. It's hard to even prepare sermons because my team's playing the night before, you know. I, I like some of this stuff of this world. Um, and I'll be honest, in my teen years and early 20s, when I heard this part of the passage, when Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be home with the Lord, I was not sure that that expressed how I felt. I liked earth. I liked my life on earth. I liked my stuff. And I liked the potential to have a comfortable life and accumulate more stuff. This was very appealing to me. If you looked at my life, and particularly my thought life, that is what I would prefer, or Paul would prefer to be with the Lord. At that point in my life, I would prefer to achieve all this stuff. I really wanted, I was really on a path to live for myself and add God when I needed him, maybe as a way to aid me in achieving my goals, kind of like a genie in a bottle. This was 1997. The economy was doing really well, and I was full throttle to live for my comforts and my dreams. That summer, I went on a short-term trip to a country that was much poorer than America, and they had a lot of economic and extreme government restrictions. I met a guy named David. And David was way smarter than me. He was the smartest kid in his village. He grew up in a poor farming village, and because he was so smart, he kept getting to advancements. He gets to college. He's the smartest kid. Every, every place he goes, he's the smartest kid. Gets a PhD, and I meet David at this point. He's like fluent in English and just kind of studied it on his own, you know, just picked it up along the way. He probably has better English than me. And David wants to meet with me so badly. I'm on this summer exchange program. And he's like, I'm like, hey, man, what's up? And he says, do you know the meaning of life? I'm like, what? <laughs> he's like, yes. I've achieved all, he tells me this life story, did this, this, and this. I get to this highest point, and now I'm probably not gonna get a good job because my dad isn't, it doesn't have a lot of clout in the society. And I've just been achieving, 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 finally got the final degree, and I'm, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And you're from another place, maybe you guys, you guys maybe have it figured out over there. David was groaning, he was weary his, in his present reality. He knew that there had to be more. I had the answer that would satisfy his groanings and weariness, but that wasn't even what I was striving for. So he was looking for the answer, and I had the answer, but I was striving for this worldly success. I had the hope of the resurrection. I knew the answer to give David, and that moment really changed my life. I went home and cried and surrendered and read I don't know how, I ended up in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and realized that I didn't understand the resurrected life. I didn't understand that I'm an Easter Christian, that I'm to live in this hope. So I'm thankful for that opportunity to talk with David, and I got to actually share the Bible with him that summer. I don't, I don't know if he became a Christian or not. Um, this is, if you guys can imagine, this is when email and those kind of things were a little more, not as, not as robust as they are now. But I pray for David often, and I thank God for using him to help me see this truth. So as, as we process this, I want to I talk about three types of people that might encounter this passage. The first, person one, you enjoy this world in a way that you lose sight of what is eternal. You often forget that we are living in broken tents, temporary tents, and God has prepared for us a new dwelling that 
is our true life, and we're supposed to make this tent to honor God. So you seek to make the tent as amazing as it can be, filling it with idol after idol, hoping to find satisfaction and happiness. And I would say the RV is, the luxury RV photo from earlier is, is the extreme of that. You want to make this tent as best as it can be because you're losing the perspective of, of what it means to live in this tent and to trust God. So you really think all these idols of the world are going to satisfy you. The second person, you are or were like the first person, but the hardships and brokenness of life and the illumination of the Spirit, as all of us as Christians, as we read the text, we realize that that's not the goal, that the goal is to live for Christ. You know that the tent is frail and temporary, but it's hard for you to trust God that he, he is good and to live out each day, especially when, you feel, when you're living in the tent and you feel the rain and you, 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 it doesn't make sense. So there's a battle within you. You know how you should live, but you also sometimes want to be, you just want the security and comforts of this world. The third type of persons, you see and experience the hardships and brokenness of this world and long to leave the tent. You're just like, I don't, I don't want that, I want to just get out of here. You know that the tent is frail and it's hard for you to trust that God is good and that he is with you as you live out each day. So there's a battle within. And the Christian life really is us struggling, like how do we trust God because we're there and not there yet. This is just a simple summary of three different type of hypothetical people, including myself, I'm in this, that I've learned that exists as I've ministered over my years in ministry. And the same person might be two or three of these at different points of their lives. So I'm not saying that pursuing the things of the world is, is bad. We need to live in this world to build Christ's kingdom. We don't need to go in a cave. We need to, and I'm also not saying that longing for heaven is bad. We need to long for heaven, but we live in this tension. And I believe that Paul was this third category person for a lot of his ministry. Read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 about Paul talking about his persecutions, his hardship, his torture, his being, you know, beaten. Paul was discouraged. When Paul says, I really want to be with the Lord, I don't think he's saying that in a vacuum. I think he's saying, no, I really, I'm sick of this. And not only am I being beaten and tortured by the outside world, the people in my own church are saying that I'm not even re of Christ. You can feel Paul's discouragement in all this. But I believe the Bible is calling us to be a fourth person. And Paul moves us in that direction. The one who lives in the present at, in a resurrection hope because they were anointed and sealed when God put his spirit in their hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing them freedom and hope and life and death so that they can live to please the Lord. Now, Erica is gonna come and share some of her experience of how we can live in this resurrection hope. Good morning. As Danny was sharing those types of people, a lot of my life I've been that number three person, kind of weary of this world and, and God has been moving me towards that type of four person where I embrace both. And that's a little of what I wanna share with you. Second Corinthians 5, 2 says, we grow weary in our present bodies. And another passage from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that we're gonna look at in a minute, Paul talks about the same topic of unease and weariness in our present bodies. And he says, our bodies are sown in dishonor which can be translated, our bodies are sown in disrespect, as in our bodies disrespect us. 
It can even be translated, our bodies disappoint us. That translation resonates with me. I've been very weary and disappointed with my body in different seasons of my life. My body disappointed me when I was an awkward and gangly middle schooler, and I thought that worth and love could only come from physical attractiveness as defined by society. My body disappointed me my first year out of college when I had my first uh, bout of depression and anxiety became unmanageable. My body disappointed me in my 30s when I was trying to raise three small children and I started experiencing symptoms of an autoimmune disease, uh, painful swollen joints and inflammation in my kidneys and fatigue um, that took years to get under control. And my body disappoints me sometimes now when I face insomnia or back pain or the general limitations that come with living in an aging earthly body, when I encounter others close to me who are suffering um, from trauma and abuse. And I know I'm not the only one. I know those are, there are those of you who are disappointed with your bodies because of learning disabilities or infertility or um, chronic pain, mental health struggles, the long-term effects of trauma caused by those who didn't treat your body with the dignity and honor it deserves. And some of you are experiencing the pain of watching a loved one struggle in their earthly bodies with dementia or cancer, just to name a few causes of living, the pain of living in an earthly tent. Now, some, I know some of you are probably thinking, that was a pretty dark <laughs> opening. <laughs> Let's not let Erica share anymore. She's kind of a Debbie Downer. But um, I promise I have hope to offer. And it's the hope that's been given to me. And the hope is for our future. And the hope is for our present. So I'm going to start with our future hope. Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, But someone may ask, How will the dead be raised? What bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant until it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when they die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our, earth, our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. And what will these bodies be like? We can't know for sure. I mean, who could see an apple seed and imagine an apple? Who could see an acorn and imagine an oak tree? Um, I'm pretty sure I won't need my glasses and my brain will have all the serotonin it needs and I'll probably probably, hopefully, finally be able to sing on tune. I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, we won't feel ashamed or unwanted. We'll be free from the sting of sin and death. We'll never feel like an imposter. We won't have the pain of watching someone we love suffer. We won't um, have any ungodly fear. It'll be easy to love our neighbor. All of our faith will be sight and we'll finally meet our Savior face-to-face. -face. Isn't that good news? Yes. <laughs> I'm so thankful for our future hope. At the same time, I want to point out something from this passage that I think is very important, and I want to be very clear. Longing for our heavenly bodies and longing to be home with the Lord does not mean we long for death. 
When I was in the deepest pit of depression, this was very confusing for me. When I would hear people say, we should long for heaven, I would think, well, who wouldn't want to be out of this place? If it, on my lowest days, if it weren't for the people I love, I would gladly like to just move on to the next life. But the thing was, I wasn't longing for Jesus. I was longing for an out from this present life. But that isn't the message of the gospel. Jesus didn't come here to give us an escape from the world. He came to establish a kingdom. And he came to bring abundant life. In John 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Longing to be home with the Lord is not a longing for death. It's a longing for more life, the life we're promised in Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that life will swallow death. So to use an example from nature, think of a frog and a fly. Who's in control? Who wins, the swallower or the swallowed? It's good, good news that life is swall- will swallow death. In Philippians 1, 20, verses 20 through 21, Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I'm sure you're seeing as we're looking at various examples of Paul's letters, this is a theme he keeps coming back to. He has a lot to say about life and death. He obviously has had to ponder this a lot as he's been near death several times in his life. But yet, even though he says death is gain, in the next chapter of this letter, in Philippians 2, he thanks God that God spared his co-worker's life. Paul doesn't say death is better because this life is hard, and Paul's life was very challenging. But he says that death is better because being with Christ is better than life. Although this this will happen fully in the future, this promised life begins now. And because of that, we not only have future hope, but present hope. The goal of Christianity isn't to reject all that is material. God likes the stuff he created. He said it's good. And And all of creation, even us, retain the seed of that goodness. Our physical bodies can be used to bring forth life and sustenance and, and comfort. N.T. Wright, we, Danny and I both uh, looked at N.T. Wright separately and realized uh, that he had a lot to say on this subject, but I love this quote in his book, Surprised by Hope. He says, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, Praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last until God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. I love the the word beastly too, it's so British, but uh, I like the idea that what we do here matters, and that's something I didn't understand for a while. I kind of just thought the gospel story was you're saved, you try to tell a bunch of people about it, and then you die, but the the in-between wasn't as important. The goal was only the next life. But when you look at the scripture as a whole, this life is very important. Jesus' life on earth was very important. And he's calling us to live for him. 
I love this truth that our ordinary everyday lives and our often disappointing bodies can be used to build a kingdom that will last, even in this fallen world that is darkened by abuse, trauma, injustice, and pain. And when our time here is done and the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we can be certain we will be with the Lord. And if you don't find that you actually long to be with the Lord, like Danny was talking about, that's okay. Pray that you will. Part of spiritual formation is the Holy Spirit growing that desire in each of us. And we have a lifetime to grow in that desire. And he has given us his spirit, his word, and his church to help us grow in our longing for him. I pray he would continue to build in all of us a desire to be with him and experience abundance and live within him both now and forever. So how do we choose to live life each day? and the hope of the resurrection. Danny's gonna come back up and we have a couple of action points we wanna share. So the first one is just choose life. And differently, if you're struggling um, to get up in the morning, struggling to find any joy or hope in this life, that might mean bringing others into your struggle to speak truth to you, to pray for you, to resource you. We have counselor, counselors we can recommend for you um, to choose to just persevere in that. For others, it might mean embracing the idea to live as Christ, and that means living in attention, that we should mourn injustice. We should be sad and angry. We should lament. We should look at what's going on in our world and, um, and care about it, and yet we should also rejoice and know that every good gift comes from the Lord. And that might mean, you know, enjoying the, the, the beauty of fall, the deliciousness of your favorite meal. And it also means being a part of this kingdom building. So. And the second, and the second uh, part of just how to apply this, there's a million ways to apply this. We're only focusing on two, is to choose to live life in gospel community. And we say this a lot at Waypoint. It's one of our core values. And if you're having a hard time finding this community, come talk to us. We'll help you. We want to set you up. But we're also creating all kinds of spaces and structures for our church to live in gospel community. Sunday morning worship, community groups, Waypoint Academy, Bible studies, prayer gatherings, social events. But we're also asking you to be proactive to invite others into your life. We can't do this journey alone, and we need, we need God's favor, and we need his, his spirit working through his church. So as we'll see in the next section of 2 Corinthians, that also we get to bring others, people outside, into this reconciliation that God has done in our hearts. So we gave you a lot of theology in just a short section because this passage has a lot of theology, and we didn't even cover half of it. But I'm going to pray that God will speak to us as we prepare our hearts for communion. And don't forget Waypoint Academy this next coming week. Uh, and then we'll have a bunch of them in the winter because we want to grow in community and these men's and women's Bible studies that are offered. Take a risk and sign up for those, okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your message and the hope that we have in the resurrection. I thank you for putting Erica and I together, two different stories, two different people who saw this passage in a different way, and it challenged us in a different way. But ultimately, we're called to be resurrection people, people who live in the hope of the resurrection. I pray for each person here, if they don't know you, that they would come to know you and, and see that 
you are not, not only the judge at the end, you will make all things right and new, but you're also the Savior who brings people into this hope. I pray that we could live for your kingdom now, and I pray that we would live to please you, and I pray that we would always remember that you are preparing, you have prepared our bodies in a place for us, and this tent is temporary, but it's, it's going to be renewed, and, but we get to enjoy it now, God. All these truths come together, God, and, and may we trust you in that, and may we come to your table just as hopeful, repentant, but hopeful people. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. Danny and Erica for pointing us to the resurrection hope that we have in Christ. As we come to the table this morning, we often think of this as a table where we remember death, Jesus' death for us. And in many ways it is that, but it's also a table of life, a table of resurrection life. Jesus, when he broke bread with his disciples, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When he took the cup, he says to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So in many ways, Jesus invites us to a space this morning of remembrance, to remember death. But he also points us to something in his next words. He says, I will not eat this bread or drink this cup until I eat it anew with you in my kingdom. And there is this glimpse of our future hope in that moment as he's anticipating death. And we see this paradigm of the gospel that through death comes life. So as we come to the table this morning, we remember, but we also anticipate that resurrection body where we will be made new. There will be no more suffering, no more pain. We will live in perfect peace. And as we come to the table this morning, I invite you that just as the resurrection is a historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead, and just as it is our future hope, it is also our present reality that we live in light of that. And so we celebrate the presence of the resurrected Jesus with us here this morning. In a moment, I'm going to, in fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and invite our servers to come forward. And we'll have four stations, one for each of the sections of chairs. And logistically, how we do this as a church is something the church is called intinction, and it's where we will hand you a piece of bread and we'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. You'll take that bread and dip it in the cup. Say, the blood of Jesus shed for you. You're welcome to take that immediately. 
let it be an appetizer of our coming joy. You're welcome to take it to your seat. Take some time to reflect and remember. There's no formula to this. I say it every time. It's not a magical snack. But this is an invitation to celebrate the gospel together. Father, we thank you that your body was broken for us so that our broken bodies could have hope. God, thank you that your blood was poured out for us so that we can be forgiven. Lord, thank you for the invitation to remember, to anticipate, and to celebrate what you have accomplished through the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as you are led.